It's always great to be uh, preaching here at Church on Mill, and um, just maybe not under these circumstances. So uh, I guess I got the call on Wednesday, um, uh, and uh, you know I've I've been talking on and off with Brother Chuck, um, kind of through some of this, and uh, it's very frustrating. So our passage today uh, teaches many many things, uh, but one clear thing it teaches is that the prayers of the righteous availeth much, and that is intercessory prayer on behalf of our uh, brothers. So uh, I just know this week, um, as it's hit me a bit more acutely, uh, his sickness, uh, I've been praying for him. I pray and I hope that you all are doing the same. Because Chuck, uh, I've been in the valley almost 10 years now. In July, it will be 10 years that I've been teaching at Phoenix Seminary, and Chuck was one of my first friends, um, and uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't, I was, um, yeah, I was kind of an alien in this land, and, uh, and Chuck was one of the first to reach out to me. We've had a friendship now for, yeah, almost a decade, and uh, so when a brother like him is down, that's a big deal, and so... Um, let's keep him in our prayers. Well, I'm going to read Mark 2, 1 to 12, uh, and then uh, try to unpack it here this morning. Mark 2, 1 to 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Well, have you ever learned a fact or a truth that just changed the way you viewed the world? Maybe it's a life hack. I don't know. I I did a little bit of time in the Boy Scouts, just a little bit. I didn't get very far. But uh, learning those special knots, you know, to be able to tie things down on your, on your car roof or, 
or maybe it's, it's learning a new recipe for a cert, to, to cook a certain meal in the kitchen, right? Sometimes those things can just sort of give you a whole different outlook on life, just little life hacks even. Or maybe it's when you fir- were first confronted with pictures or videos of outer space and men walking on the moon, right? Or maybe you, I don't know, we, none of us here probably understand Einstein's theory of relativity, but we can understand the consequence, right, of the uh, age of atomic energy that we now live in. Maybe it was hiking in a canyon or climbing a mountain that caused you to change your view of the world and how it works. Or maybe it was a key idea, like when you first learned and embraced the idea that a human being is in part material and in part immaterial, and how that might uh, influence the way we take care of our body and our soul, right? And how even that immaterial part of us affects the material and vice versa. I don't know, you fill in the blank. That, that idea, that experience that caused you to view the world differently. Well, I think our passage this morning in Mark 2, 1 to 12 presented the people of Jesus' day with a radically different way of viewing God and themselves when he taught that the Son of Man had authority on earth to forgive sins. That single truth turned everyone's world upside down, so to speak, for now they, as we, were confronted with Jesus as God and how their sins were forgiven. That Jesus, as the Son of Man, could forgive sins at that time in history changed and, of course, continues to change lives today. People who trust in Jesus' gospel are forgiven and relieved of the guilt of their sin. Now, before diving immediately into our passage this morning, we need to review what Mark has told us up to this point. In particular, we we need to remember how Mark's gospel situates uh, itself. The first three verses are the key, really, to understanding the entire gospel of Mark. They read like this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Game-changing verses in this context. Verses 2 to 3 are a combination of Exodus 23 verse 20 and Malachi 3 verse 1, as well as Isaiah 40 verse 3. These verses are announcing the coming of God's messenger and a voice crying in the wilderness. But the most important part about these two Old Testament passages is the new reality that they anticipate. You see, those words were spoken, especially Isaiah 40 verse 3, those words were spoken as predictions for people going into exile and then coming out of exile, okay? They went into exile, and then they did come out of exile 70 years later, didn't they? And yet, these verses are said while the people have been in the land for hundreds of years now. That's interesting. Both texts, though most clearly in Isaiah, anticipate the Lord's return. 
to bring his people on the new exodus. Now, you'll remember the old exodus, right? In which God led his people by the hand of Moses out of slavery in Egypt. Well, the first exodus was only a picture or a type of the new and greater exodus to come. You see, the prophets foretold a new exodus by which God would lead his people out of sin and death itself by the work of the Messiah. The work of the suffering servant is best seen in Isaiah 53. And Mark actually alludes to the work of that servant in Mark 10.45 when he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thus, Mark is casting the person and work of Jesus, the Son of God, as carrying out the new exodus, anticipated in the Old Testament. Jesus is freeing captives not from Egypt, not from Babylon, and to his Jewish contemporary chagrin, not from Rome, but rather God in Christ appeared to deliver his people from sin, death, and the devil. The return from Babylon, you see, that Nehemiah and Ezra went, uh, 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 went through. The return from Babylon became another picture or a type of this final new exodus. In fact, both Isaiah and Daniel tell us that it would be easier and quicker. It would only take 70 years, you see, to get the people out of Babylon than it would be to get Babylon out of the hearts of the people. God's anointed one, King Cyrus, in Isaiah 45, he would be used for the lesser exodus out of Babylon. And we can read about that decree that Cyrus gave, right? That all the Judeans can return back to their homeland. With me on that? But was that the end of the exile? Not according to Mark. The end of the exile is with Jesus, you see. That's the end of the exile. The exile is over, and now all the exiles are being called home to live with God forever. God's servant king in Isaiah 53, he would be the greater servant to accomplish the greater exodus out of sin and death. That's the context that we're in. In fact, it's worth noting that the healing of the paralytic occurs in Capernaum. Some of you are like, oh no, it's a geography quiz. What? Capernaum. It's up on the north, slightly west side of the Sea of Galilee, just west of the Jordan River, right? It was that town that the exiles going off to Babylon stopped at. It was one of the staging areas for the exiles. And all of them shipped out or deported to Babylon from there. It's not insignificant that Jesus stations himself in some of these same areas when he's announcing the exile is over, right? That's the significance of the location that these happen in. We saw Capernaum already in Mark 1.27. It was there that Jesus first exercised authority in casting out the unclean spirit. And now Jesus is back in Capernaum where he exercises authority in the forgiving of sins. In both events, at Capernaum, 
Jesus signals that the exile is truly and finally over. His authority over the spirits and his authority to forgive sins on earth fulfills the Old Testament's expectation for the ceasing of the exile and for now and now for all to come home to God. Isaiah 27's trumpet is sounding, you see, and the preaching of the gospel is going out to the world, and it's now time for those who trust in God to come home. It's in this context of Jesus leading captives on the new exodus out of sin and death that we now come to our passage in Mark 2, 1 to 12. Again, the first couple verses here uh, just provide the setting, don't they, for this story. Uh, Jesus is back at Capernaum. Many are gathered listening to him speak the word. Now, that word must be none other than the gospel of the kingdom of God being near, right? And, and for the response, right, right, that's part of the gospel, actually, to repent and believe. Mark tells us about that in chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. That's what Jesus preached. It's amazing. He was teaching or speaking the word here. And no one should have to wonder what he was lecturing on at that point. Because it seems like Jesus has one message, doesn't he? One message. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. Right? That's astonishing. So here he is, though, again, in Capernaum, in a house, preaching the kingdom of God is, is near, and we, the people need to repent of their sins and trust in the good news of the kingdom, right? Now, fundamentally, the kingdom of God is the righteous rule and reign of God, which includes the forgiveness of sins and putting sinners who feel their need of Jesus, right, in the right before God. You can't have God's righteous rule and reign here on earth and citizens of the kingdom not be right before Him. Do you follow me? Rather, the kingdom of God, the good news, makes the citizens of that city, the citizens of that kingdom, right with God if they repent and believe. This was Jesus' main message. It will continue to be the good news that his church preaches until Christ returns. But it's in the context of Jesus speaking this word to an overly crowded house and courtyard that something remarkable happens in verses 3 to 5, and that's where we see the first stage of development in the plot or in the story here, which ends with a paralytic forgiven in verse 5. So the plot develops here. There are four men, right, who trust that Jesus has the authority and power to heal their friend, remove the section of the roof from where Jesus is sitting below, and they actually dig out a hole in the roof and lower the bed on which the paralytic was laying. I wonder who repairs that. Anyhow, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, quite, that's quite a feat. These guys have faith and nothing stands in their way from bringing the paralytic to Jesus. Now, Jesus sees the faith of the four, doesn't he, who carried the paralytic in to be healed, and he says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is the first mention of the people's faith in Mark's gospel, right? Though we looked at it, though, Mark 1.15 does have Jesus uh, Right, proclaiming, repent and, be, and, and believe, right? 
So, so there's always a call to believe. But this is actually the very first place in Mark's gospel where it is said that someone had faith. Right? It's fascinating. The, the, the word is bearing fruit. Faith is being created in the hearers. The first mention of people having faith. This is the first response to Jesus' gospel of the kingdom of God on record. The men trusted Jesus could heal the paralytic. There's not a lot about what they, what they knew. There's not a lot about, you know, the, the, the measure of their faith. The text is so simple, it just says he saw their faith. Right? I love it. They may not have known everything. They just knew or believed that Jesus could heal this paralytic. Now, much has been made of this passage, this, this particular verse here, because the paralytic's faith is not directly in view, is it? Everybody, everybody notice that in verse 5? And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, that's a little unclear as to whether the paralytic's faith is included in the, their faith, right? Yeah. In fact, just as I read it kind of naturally, you would kind of think the paralytic is not included, right? And maybe that's the case. It's a little bit ambiguous, but the emphasis seems to be on Jesus seeing the faith of the four men carrying him. <clears throat> I think the paralytic could have believed. He certainly would have hoped that Jesus could heal him. I don't think that was at issue. But in this narrative, Jesus focuses on the believing intercession of the paralytic's carriers as he does elsewhere in the gospel. So, for example, right, in chapter 5, verse 21, we're going to see the father who interceded on behalf of his sick daughter, right, asking Jesus to go and heal her, and Jesus does so. But the commendation of the friend's intercession here should not be seen as diminishing the need of personal faith. For Jesus, in the Gospel of Mark, continues to affirm that people are healed by their faith, like in Mark 5.34 and Mark 10.52. And he continues to exhort the people to have faith in 11.22, and he also admonishes his own disciples when they have no faith, like in Mark 4.40, okay? So, um, there was no other faith good enough for the apostles in chapter 4, verse 40. Follow me? So clearly, the gospel of Mark does highlight individual faith as required for entrance into the kingdom of God, right? The basic message of the gospel was repent and believe. That's not uh, being set aside here in Mark 2 due to a story emphasizing intercession. Jesus here focuses on intercession, which may better show the power of his rule and reign, as we will see. It also adds to um, the, the overall astonishment of the crowd in verse 12, that all of these events go towards their absolute amazement. Now, in James 5, 15 and following, we are reminded that our prayers of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. 
and if that person has sinned, he will be forgiven, right? So, so that instruction in James 5 about intercession probably came from seeing Jesus on earth forgive and heal the paralytic in response to the intercession of his friends. So, so one purpose of this event in Mark 2 is to remind all of us that Jesus answers our intercessions on behalf of others, as he did on earth in events like the ones we're reading about now. So in many ways, it's very apropos. And it's a good reminder that we need to be interceding for Pastor Chuck and the sick among us. That's a clear application from this text. But even still, I want to be clear that entrance into the kingdom occurs by personal faith. Faithful intercession can heal one and even save one from death, according to James, but the scriptures do not teach that faith by proxy is a sufficient means to enter the kingdom of God. This is why I think Jesus continues to commend personal faith and exhort all to believe in the gospel. So a parent's or grandparents' faith, right? It's kind of this way this passage has been used over the years. A parent's or grandparents' faith is not sufficient for a child or grandchild to be baptized and enter the kingdom. We need to continue to exhort, as Jesus did, our own children and those we're discipling generally to repent of their sin and believe the gospel so that they might be saved. All right, so that pronouncement, son, your sins are forgiven, gives way to this internal or heart dialogue that amongst the scholars and scribes in the room. That phrase, that expression, your sins are forgiven, prompts all the scholars listening to Jesus in the room to raise their eyebrows. What? I was asleep. Now he has my attention, right? Because that's weird. That is strange. In fact, <laughs> um, in this particular narrative, the, the scribes don't seem to be too concerned about whether there was a connection between the paralytic's infirmed condition and his sins. You know that relationship of like, well, maybe he's paralyzed because he has sinned, right? That whole relationship, that doesn't actually seem to come up in this narrative. At least it's not front and center. Elsewhere, of course, Jesus questions the relationship between one's sin and one's sickness. You can go and read John 9 uh, this afternoon to see more about the man born blind, right? <laughs> they come to him, the experts come to Jesus and they ask, is it this man's sin or his parents? And Jesus is like, no, <laughs> wrong question false dichotomy. So, Jesus doesn't seem to be raising that issue with this audience here in Mark 2. But Mark tells us the scribes and scholars in the room questioned in their hearts, why does he speak thus? He blasphemes. Who is able to forgive sins except the one God? That's, that's base theology for the scholars in the room. 
Again, to blaspheme would be what? A human being trying to take the place of God, right? That's the charge. Does it stick? That's the question. But I want to make sure that we're clear that the Old Testament absolutely confirms it is only God's role to forgive. <clears throat> Isaiah 43 verse 25 says, this is the Lord talking, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. <clears throat> so they're right. Only Yahweh has this, has this role. <clears throat> of blotting out the people's transgressions for his own sake. A fascinating verse, I think, that reminded the people that Yahweh was the one who blotted out transgressions and remembered sins no more. Thus, the scribes who heard Jesus must have thought this was quite a claim. In fact, it would be blasphemous if human being Jesus was assuming God's own authority in this, in this way, in this pronouncement of forgiveness. Psalm 103, verses 2 and 3 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. I'm always stunned by this psalm, because the very first benefit is, Who forgives all your iniquity. Now, if, if you're like me, <clears throat> living in this culture, sin is not always on your mind, is it? No. The hardest thing to convince an unbeliever of is not that there's a God. It's that that unbeliever is a sinner. That's the hardest thing to convince someone of. Have you run into that problem? Trying to show someone they're a sinner? Yeah. Because it's based on law is based on coming from God, right? They don't, they don't see their sin. And yet, the very first benefit the psalmist mentions in Psalm 103, verse 3, is God forgives all my iniquity, and He heals my diseases. That's amazing. These are the exact exhibitions of Jesus' authority in these early chapters of Mark. He heals and forgives, actions attributed to Yahweh alone in the Old Testament. Of course, Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Right? That, I, think that, I think that very truth kept the psalmist up many, many nights. I know it kept a certain German monk named Martin Luther up many, many nights. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? That is, who could be in the right before you, O God? That is still the fundamental problem with fallen creatures, sinful creatures. We can't stand before the Lord. But that's why the gospel comes away right away in Psalm 130, verse 4. But with you, God, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The very one who could mark our iniquities 
is the same one who cancels them. But notice, that is, that is a function, that is an action attributed to God alone in all, these, in all these texts. We could go on. If you have time, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, this afternoon, before the Super Bowl. You should check it out. I'll be watching the Super Bowl. <clears throat> all right. The scribes and scholars of the Old Testament were right to be triggered by Jesus' pronouncement of the forgiveness of sins. There was no Old Testament or intertestamental expectation that the Messiah would forgive sins on his own authority. What their inner dialoguing of the heart shows is that they were not willing to see Jesus as God. And thus blasphemy, right? If Jesus is God, he's not blaspheming, right? That, let's be clear about that. If Jesus is God, then there's no blasphemy in play. But the people were, having, were, were struggling, of course, to see that this human being in front of them had the authority of God to, pron to pronounce forgiveness of sins. The text says that immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that they were questioning in themselves. That seems to be divine too. Though some prophets like Samuel seem to know certain things as well, it still seems to be somewhat tied to the, to the knowledge of the divine. He had a knowledge, Jesus had a knowledge of the paralytic sins in order, for, or in order to forgive them, and also a knowledge of the inner discourse of the scribe's heart. Only God knows these sorts of things. At the end of verse 8, Jesus forces the whole plot to its climax, right, with this question, why do you question these things in your hearts? Why do you question these things in your hearts? Jesus wants them to see that he and the forgiveness of sins he offers is the game changer they're looking for. He wants them to see that he is the God-man. He is the Messiah he, who, 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 was, was an, who, who they were looking for, who they were anticipating. They may not have understood that the suffering servant with his high and lifted upness, would be divine. They may not have known that. They weren't looking for this person. But Jesus is saying to them all through his gospel, I am the one that you're looking for. If you would receive me, your whole world would be changed. And it's much the same with us today. Who do you think Jesus is? Are you confronted by him? And then question in your heart, and conclude that he was a blasphemer. So we'll come back to this question at the end. Well, that leads Jesus then, Jesus' question at the end of verse 8 actually leads to the climax of this, of this plot. This is actually, verses 9 to 10 is where it's all knotted up, nice and tight. They asked, who can forgive sins but God alone? And now Jesus doesn't deny that claim that he is God but only enhances it in verse 10 when he says that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Right, and verse 9 is also crucial to understand. Jesus, I think, speaks from a human perspective when he asks, what's easier to say? Notice he doesn't actually say what's easier to do, right? He, sa he says what's easier to say. What's easier? And of course, what he means is that it's far easier to say one's sins are forgiven. 
and no one can verify whether it's true or not. Right? I could just say right now, everybody's sins are forgiven, right? And I wouldn't know, and you wouldn't know whether that was true, right? But if you or I say to the lame man, get up and walk, he's going to know pretty quickly whether I'm a charlatan or I'm from God, right? Pretty quickly, right? Yeah. Yeah. So in many ways, right, it's harder to say that, get up and walk, because everyone's expecting that to happen. <laughs> Whereas if I say your sins are forgiven, there's actually no noticeable, noticeable change. <clears throat> so, verse 9 shows that the miracle of healing the paralytic serves to verify and validate the claim that the paralytic sins are actually forgiven. This is the truth that changes everyone's worldview. Not only does Jesus pronounce forgiveness of sins, but he actually provides a sign to validate that it's true. The miracles buttress the teachings of Jesus. We cannot have one without the other, right? Rationalist, enlightenment thinking believed it could simply adopt the moral teachings of Jesus and leave the miracles behind as mythic and legendary, right? Since they were not able to be empirically validated. You can still go find Thomas Jefferson's Bible online today. And, uh, you know, he takes out the scissors. And all the supposed mythic, miraculous elements are omitted from Thomas Jefferson's Bible. And so what you truly have is if you read it from cover to cover, it's just uh, Jesus as a kind of moral, wise teacher. Right? But Jefferson, I don't think, ever stopped to ask... That's not good enough for me. Like, I, I don't really follow Jesus with just this Bible. And he doesn't really stop to ask, how could a massive movement like early Christianity get started if it's just the moral teachings? Right? Yeah. That's kind of, that's sort of a massive omission. So most historians have to actually come back and go, wait, probably wouldn't be the movement and the, and the teachings and the preaching of that gospel without the power and demonstration to accompany it, right? The people, in fact, this is what this exact story teaches us. The people would not have believed Jesus' teachings about the Son of Man's authority to forgive sins without the accompanying demonstration of his power to heal the paralytic. That is, the text, this text, forces us to think that Jesus' teachings cannot be verified without his miracles. They are to be taken together. Now, this is the first time Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, and no one seems particularly bothered by this title. I mean, that just sort of bounces off everybody. In fact, he'll, he'll use the term 14 times about himself throughout the Gospel of Mark. No one seems to read anything into it. In fact, it may be the most apolitical term Jesus could have chosen. Notice he doesn't come out and say the Messiah has authority on earth. That would have been fighting words, right? A direct claim to be the Messiah would have been a different kind of claim. He's, he, he calls himself the Son of Man. Now, some scholars have understood Son of Man to just be him saying, I'm a human being. But is that the way it reads to you? 
Is that really what he's saying here? The human being has, a pow- has a, the authority on earth to forgive sins? That doesn't seem right, does it? But so we're clear, you will see the phrase son of man in Psalm 8, for example, and it's there talking about humanity. And you will also see the phrase son of man in the latter chapters of the book of Ezekiel, where God is talking to the prophet and calling him son of man. And I do, do think he just means human being in those contexts. But what makes me think, and you think, that he's not just saying human being here? It's the very claim itself, right? He claims to be able to do something only God can do, and that's forgive sins, right? That's, so it can't just be human being here, right? In fact, if we look at the 14 times in Mark, where Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, there's basically three ways that he uses this title. In a few places, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, who would be that end-time figure who is going to judge all of humanity at his coming. These passages, Mark 8.38, 13.26, and 14.62, those three places are based on Daniel 7's portrayal of the Son of Man. Remember that that vision? One like the Son of Man on a cloud goes up and, and approaches the Ancient of Days, right, who is God. The very fact that this one like the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is pictured on a cloud already shows that that Son of Man was going to be divine. Right? Only, in ancient, only the, God, the storm gods in the ancient world are, are pictured as being on clouds or riding clouds. So Baal, the, the Canaanite storm god, he is literally called the cloud rider. And here's now this one like the son of man riding on a cloud, approaching the ancient of days. This is the same son of man that Mark and Matthew, right, all the gospel writers are going to picture Jesus as. It's fascinating. So, so clearly there's something more than human being going on in those places. We also, in Mark's gospel, the second way Son of Man refers uh, or, or is, is a title for Jesus is when Jesus claims authority for something. On two occasions, we, we just looked at the first one, and then at the end of chapter 2 in verse 28, he's going to say that the Son of Man has authority over the Sabbath. So I'll let someone else unpack that. But, but those two references clearly show that he's more than a mere human being, though he still takes the title Son of Man. And then third, Jesus mostly employs the title some nine times with reference to his own suffering. But that just what that does is it creates a complex or a complicated picture, doesn't it? The Son of Man is a title that clearly shares some aspects of divinity and shares some aspects of humanity. There's not a doctrinal formula in the Gospel of Mark that I'm aware of that tries to sort that out, but you start to see that Jesus, as the Son of Man, shares divine qualities and human qualities. But the main usage of the title is to highlight Jesus' fulfillment of the God-ordained purpose of suffering. 
Now, verse 10 ends with Jesus speaking to the paralytic. Everyone in that house, in that courtyard, pressed up against that door, is literally on the edge of their seats for the release of the tension to occur in verse 11. Is Jesus the charlatan who's walking around in vain pronouncing forgiveness of sins? Or is Jesus God? That's what everyone's waiting for. Verses 11 and 12 come. In verse 11, we know the end of the story. Jesus commands the paralytic to stand, take his mat and go home. And in verse 12, the paralytic obeys in the presence of all. The miracle is done, and the people are astounded and glorify God, saying that they've never seen anything like this before. And that's how I want to begin concluding this sermon. I was teaching a Bible study this past week, and a few times over the course of the hour, I said that I was amazed or astounded at something in the text. Finally, one person asked me what I, what I meant by that word, astounded. We were studying the Old Testament, and I said, well, when you know what ancient peoples believed, say, about polytheism, and then you come to the Old Testament's monotheism, you realize that's the one idea that turns the whole world upside down, and you're astounded when you see it. Sometimes all it takes is one idea for the whole business to be flipped on its head. Well, in the same way in our passage, are you astounded like the crowd was? They knew only God could forgive sins. And yet Jesus was forgiving sins and performing signs and wonders to validate that it was happening. Are you astounded? Are you amazed? Truly, they had not seen such demonstration of authority at any time previously. His pronouncement of forgiveness and his miracle turned the world upside down for that crowd. Now, may we all be amazed and astounded at the uniqueness of that event. Christ's forgiveness of sins there inaugurated the new exodus. All those who came to him and who come to him by faith are freed from sin and death and are made alive to serve God. They literally come out of sin and death and bondage to the devil who holds the power of death. So I pray that this narrative continues to astound not only the people of God, but also those on the outside looking in, that they would know what it means to have true relief from sin's guilt and corruption. Jesus is the only way out, the only way. So I want to close with two applications. The gospel here is on clear display. Again, we're sinners like the paralytic in need of having our sins forgiven by this Son of Man. May we feel our need of Christ and come and buy without money. Isaiah 55. I love that vision. The kingdom of God is upside down where you can come and buy without money. But only if you feel your need of Jesus Christ in the first place. May we trust Christ's gospel for the forgiveness of our sins before the righteous God. This is true, right? Whether you're a Christian struggling with sin or an unbeliever here this morning 
in need of experiencing forgiveness. Christian, if you are struggling, the method is the one of grace. Continue to come to Jesus. He is your great high priest. He will save you to the uttermost. It's only when you give up that he cannot save you. Keep coming to Jesus who will intercede for you forever. Second, the Son's divine authority is on display here and elsewhere in Mark. I was reminded of this truth afresh this week because although the world appears to be a powder keg once again as wars and rumors of wars are upon us, the Son of Man, of course, has authority and power And he moves the nations at his will. Ultimately, we know how the story ends when he appears on a white horse to vanquish his enemies and establish his reign of peace in the new creation. What he began in Capernaum will be finished one day when he returns. So let's keep trusting him again this week as we work for the sake of his kingdom and his gospel. Let me pray for us. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this day that you've given to us. We're thankful for this word which which you have inspired holy men to write and scribes to preserve across the centuries so that your people, time and time and time again as we come to it, we read it privately, we read it publicly, we hear it preached. We can see the great and awesome work of the Son of Man in forgiving sins and healing paralytics so that we can be encouraged to pray for our brothers and sisters, that we can be encouraged to to preach and teach the gospel to those who need it most. Be with us this week, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.